Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Trisha Cuffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today I have a special award-winning guest for you, uh, landscape architect Lori Olin. His book is Be Seated published by Oro Editions in 2017. Now, Mr. Olin is a distinguished teacher, author, and one of the most renowned landscape architects practicing today. From vision to realization, he has guided many of Olin's signature projects, which span the history of the studio from the Washington Monument grounds in D.C. to Bryant Park in New York City. His recent project is the AIA award-winning Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, Lori studied civil engineering at the University of Alaska and pursued architecture at the University of Washington, where Richard Hagg, fortunately for us, encouraged him to focus on landscape. He is currently practice professor of landscape architecture at the University of Pennsylvania, where he has taught for over 40 years and is the former chair of the Department of Landscape Architecture at Harvard University. Lori is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences a fellow of the American Society of Landscape Architects and the recipient of the 1998 Award in Architecture from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He is also the recipient of the 2012 National Medal of Arts, the highest lifetime achievement award for artists and designers bestowed by the National Endowment for the Arts and the President of the United States. He also holds a 2011 American Society of Landscape Architects Medal the Society's highest award for a landscape architect. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tricia. It's great to be here and great to talk to you. Let's start with uh, what was your motivation for writing this book? What was the reason to do it? Well, it's kind of odd. I, I've, for many years, um, been working on the design of public places. And like many landscape architects, uh, I always have the sense that not only people do not know what we do, but they don't really understand their own environment. You know, Ian McCarg once said that the fish will be the last creature to discover water. And I, I had this notion that people didn't really understand uh, the way we occupy and use uh, public space. And that one of the most important parts of public space is how we sit around together. And given the recent crises of everyone and, and the sense of we need a sense of community, we need to understand each other, we need to spend more time. It seems like I didn't realize how timely this book would be, but it's, it's about civic space and how people have sat in public space for generations and, and what the, the issues are in the design of seats for people just to be outdoors together. So, so it was uh, written partly for my students, I guess, after all these years, and but all really for the public. It was it was for other laymen to get a sense of 
what is what what goes on when we walk into a park and look for a place to sit down and what went into the design of that? That must be your phone, not mine. <laughs> anyway, there's a bit of a bit of a a longer answer to your question, but it, it came from just trying to explain to people what I've been doing for many years and some of my interests in in the design of what we put our rear ends on when we sit down and why. Now, since this is a listening medium, um, I would like to ask you for the benefit of our audience, who is the graphic layout designer? His name's Pablo? Oh, he's a wonderful guy. Pablo uh, Mandel. He's in Buenos Aires. He's designed a lot of books for uh, architects and designers. He's a great designer himself and a wonderful guy. This book is very beautiful uh, with the drawings and the watercolors. Um, how and why did you choose these particular ones for your book? Well, I, I've been having sketchbooks since uh, my last year in high school, and so there's a lot to choose from. I, but it, it has to do with the drawings I put in the book. There, there's drawings of all kinds of furniture, both indoors and out, but there's also drawings of things that I've seen people sitting on in different places in the world, in cafes and in parks and public plazas and piazzas. And um, so I I tend to have a lot of sketches of all sorts of stuff. So I just had to ransack through all the sketchbooks to find things that would help me explain the different ideas that go into designing places for people to sit in parks and then the different uh, ways that things have been designed because you'd think since we've had chairs since the Egyptians that it's been figured out, but people keep redoing it. You know, we keep reinventing the same thing um, for all kinds of reasons. It, it, there is no right or wrong one. There, there are just a lot of versions, you know. Okay, two questions. Um, how did your interest in France begin? Um, I love your garden uh, images from the Tuileries. And uh, how did you uh, become interested in drawing? I was a young architect living and working in New York in the 60s. And I'd never been to Europe. And of course, that was a goal I wanted to go. And so in 1967, I went to Paris and I was looking around. And when I got home from Paris, I realized that a lot of the pictures I'd taken were of chairs and of people sitting around in parks and in cafes. And that obviously one of the things that had influenced me the most and I'd been the most interested in was the public life of uh, people there, like in the Tuileries, as you mentioned, and in the Luxembourg Garden and in the Bois de Boulogne and all these places. And that I was fascinated by the fact that they actually had chairs outdoors in parks. Um, in those days, you, you had to rent them. <laughs> There were these kind of fierce old women who ran around and rented them for a few centimes for the day. But um, I and now, of course, they're free. But um, one of the things was I thought that's interesting. I you could go pick up a chair and move it and sit it next to a fountain, and, or you could move it into the shade if you're hot. And the notion that there was movable, portable furniture in a public space absolutely fascinated me. I thought this is really wonderful. This this allows people to treat the city as though it's theirs. It's their own, their big living room is this public space. And, and that had a huge influence on me in terms of my life and career. I wasn't a landscape architect at that point. I, I, I But I realized I'd fallen in love with cities and I'd fallen in love with public space and with how people could exercise their kind of 
relationships to each other and, and their diversity and their their curiosity and take pleasure outdoors together of uh, dining and you know we're we're primates you know for, for the great apes right and and we love to like most primates we love to be together and and eating together outdoors is is something that people enjoy enormously so that's how it all started for me. It was just that discovery of something so simple and obvious. Perfect. Yeah. That leads me to a great question. Um, what can you tell us about in your first chapter, discovering the ordinary? Well, that's another aspect of my work and the work of many designers is that a lot of what we do has to do with facilitating ordinary life, making life possible. You know, it's like the can opener and the, and the, the glass that you don't think about the glass when you want a glass of wine, you just think about the wine. But usually, unless you say this is the wrong glass for this wine, and then suddenly you realize that an ordinary thing like the glass, there are all these different designs. There's the glass for, you know, champagne versus the glass for a beer. And, and so the ordinary, it turns out, is something of enormous importance to designers. They, they have to pay attention to it. And, and, uh, it's the thing that modern philosophers have spent a lot of time puzzling about, you know, ordinary language and how we communicate. And so I, I found that I was focusing quite often not on the grand cathedrals, not on the, you know, monumental avenues, but I was more interested in uh, what facilitated a, a good life for everyone without them noticing it, you know, that how anonymous some of the best things were and i found that to be one of the the, the criteria for great design and it turns out that in modernism the, the Bauhaus and people like that uh where walter gropius and Mies van der Rohe, when they were helping to initiate modern architecture one of the things that they focused on was um furniture and uh, crockery, you know, dishes, silverware, lamps, and that sort of thing. But anyway, so, so the ordinary things, you know, uh, this was a fascination of modern poets and modern architects, and it turns out I see why. It was, it, it, because, you know, birth, death, life, taxes, there, there are some things that have gone on forever, you know, human motives, and, um, and they're the subject of great art. It, that it's someone said that there's nothing new in art is that what's new in art is always a version it's a version of something that, that people have been dealing with for centuries does that help you i think so yeah uh, you know history doesn't uh repeat but it does rhyme that's right that, that was mark twain i think said that which is wonderful I, i've always thought it's true and we're, we're kind of living it right now having been through the 60s and we didn't quite get what we needed at that time so we're trying it again you know so true. Yeah. I was so surprised to see, uh, yeah, all those loose chairs in the Tuileries Gardens. I thought, wow, this is great. Yeah, it, it is a fabulous space. And it's pretty simple, too. Just rows of trees, a, a sheet of gravel, and some cafes, a few basins and fountains, and, uh, and a lot of chairs. <laughs> this is it. There's a few benches, but not very many. Um. And, but one of the things that happened was when I became interested in this subject, I thought, well, maybe I should find out more about it. And I was teaching history to students, and I thought, oh, I wonder where this came from, all this stuff. 
And I discovered that um, the modern uh, seating, the, the loose furniture and this sort of thing, is actually a fairly recent invention. And I, I was very curious how it got going. And I started looking back in classical history and found that, yeah, they had movable furniture, but they just brought it out from indoors and then took it back indoors. And they didn't build the only public seating in classical antiquity was in, you know, the theaters, those, those great Greek and Roman theaters. That was about it. There wasn't much else. Um, there was theater, there was seating at some of the amphitheaters and there was some seating at the racetracks, but there wasn't really public lounging the way we have today. People stood around and they leaned on things and sat on steps, but that was it. There was no furniture. And it wasn't until the Renaissance, believe it or not, that people finally built public seats in, uh, outdoors. Uh, and they began as the base of palazzos. And I speculate that it was both for people who were sitting there to have an audience with Mr. Medici because they wanted something or wanted to give him something or needed a favor, or it was some gangs of guys who, with swords who were part of his defense, would sit there as the sort of informal guard. But public seating began in Florence uh, around the base of, of the Palazzi, and then it, they built some in the uh, Piazza del Repubblico for events. And, and then those, some of those uh, Florentine architects went to Rome, uh, and they started building the same things around the palazzos in Rome, like at the Palazzo Farnese. There's a wonderful bench along the base of it, and the, the bottom of the building is basically a bench and uh, for people to sit. Uh, and I thought, isn't that interesting? That's the beginning of it. And so they were sort of fixed like that for a while, and then finally we find people starting to put benches and taking furniture outdoors into parks, private parks, gardens. And then when those became public, uh, it was, you know, as basically in France, after the, the royal parks in France and England and elsewhere became public due to the revolutions, uh, furniture was there and people found it. And then in the 19th century, um, we find it becomes a thing that is manufactured because we get all this industry producing products, you know, and, and we get the rise of a middle class and leisure and people wanting to sit. And suddenly in Paris, there's this efflorescence, there's this flowering of public furniture. It happens in the mid 19th century and it is immediately copied every Barcelona, Rome, New York. And so what we think of today as it must have always been there wasn't always there. It's kind of like electric lights. They weren't always there. You know? What is then the nature of public spaces? People, if they pick up the book and spend any time, it, some, one of the questions might come up with, well, you were talking about outdoor furniture, Mr. Olin, but why are there all these drawings from bars and cafes and indoors and chairs and sofas and stuff? And the real reason for that is simply that um, I find um, that I'm as interested in life inside the wall as outside the wall, and that lessons learned in one place tend to transfer to the other place, except that you have to think of how you do it differently. The scale is different outside, and things are sitting in the weather, whereas inside, you know, you know it's more intimate and it's smaller, and things are more protected. And so, you 
I'm very interested in the differences between, say, uh, a chair inside and a chair outside. And I'm in, uh, but I'm also interested in what's common, what's similar. And so that's why they're both uh, are there. The business of public space, um, it, it, it's so fascinating how uh, we like to be together, but we also want to feel safe. <laughs> we, we want to sit with our backs to the wall under some shade, looking out across, and then instead of seeing the wild animals go by at the safe distance, we see all the other people. You know, and, and the thing about public space is that it's like theater. When you enter the space, you're an actor, and then when you sit, you become the part of the audience. And so we're both audience and actor always when we're in a public space. And, and people are always watching each other, um, taking you know uh, their cues from them about behavior. And, and also, we're, we're really curious about each other. We, we, we really love other people, but, but we also want to feel that and if we're going to be okay and the other person is not a problem. So, so public space, you know, it, there are no rules, but there are some pretty good ones to go look at that give you a, a way to design them. And I would like to say that um, when I was doing Bryant Park, I realized that the key to it was the inhabited edge, that, that the edge of a space is where everybody wants to sit. And, and when you go out in the middle, you're on stage. And so, Having a space that has uh, openness where you can see across and in and out, you can move freely, but you can also sit in in separate places that, that with your friends, your family, uh, with a social group um, is, is very important. You know, you, you don't want to make people have to be out in the middle. There's always some people want to show off, they're happy to be out in the middle, but, but generally people like to hang around the edge, it's, and they like to be crowded a little, but not too much. And so that's part of the thing I've, I've learned in the course of it. I, I try to show that in the book with some of the projects that I, I, I selected. Does that help? How do you use chairs and seating to engage the public in your landscape projects? Well, um, one of the things is that... Uh, I've found that there, there's a big difference between fixed furniture and movable furniture, and that we probably need both, you know, a combination of furniture in places. Fixed furniture is, you know, helps you make, a, make space. You, know, you can arrange it so that it, it defines where the plants are and shrubs and trees or hills and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and it can establish basically like guide rails or guardrails where you can't go past a bunch of fixed benches and the loose furniture people like to claim and move around and bring over toward the fixed furniture and that sort of thing but but one of the things is that i found that um and we we like to talk to people when we're designing our projects we we have clear ideas about what might and might not work but we also need to know who we're talking to and what what's on their minds um, we, we usually do meet with um, owners and clients or with cities and commissions and that sort of thing. But, but at this point, I'd say that um, a lot of people don't quite understand what makes them comfortable until they see it. <laughs> they, 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 need, uh, they need some examples. 
And it's easier for them to respond to a design than it is to re- to just tell you what they need or want. So we we tend to produce schemes that we will we'll, we'll start out with an analysis of space. We'll meet with some people. We'll produce a proposal, but then we try to show people things that we don't mind them poking at and pushing around a bit uh, and to get a reaction from them. And and once we show them something, they can usually very clearly have strong ideas or they can understand what we're doing and, and they can help us. But but it, it's, it's hard to know everything. Nobody does, you know, nobody's perfect. So, so we, we always try to find a way to let people help us. But we also know that, you know, if you, it's like if Olmsted went out to, in New York in 1868, and 1858 rather, and started asking people what they wanted, he wouldn't have come up with Central Park because they wouldn't have had the imagination for it. But once he got started, people could comment and criticize and he could adjust and that sort of thing. And so one of the things is we have to help people think of things they, they, they don't know. We have to help them imagine things they don't aspire to on the one hand is what but we also have to listen to them when they say no or when they say you know too much or it's you know makes me nervous uh, or I, we, so it's a it's a two-way street really yeah well you know how do you um, address with your clients the issues of movable furniture <laughs> yeah, you mean about loose chairs and that white the, the resist? How did I get over that? Well, when uh, when we were doing Bryant Park, um, which really was the first park that I can think of in in America where people did the obvious thing of putting chairs out like they do in France, there had been experiments already in New York of of. Uh, some chairs up on Fifth Avenue in front of uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And, uh, but, you know, as as they put a few out, there wasn't a lot in a park and it was an experiment. And so when I proposed it, um, there was this question about, well, this is New York, people will steal them. And I said, well, I don't think so. And they said, well, what are we doing? And this guy who was in the meeting bailed me out. He said, well, why don't we just do what they do in Paris, just stack them up and throw a chain around them at night? And so then the people said, oh, okay. So so that's what we did on the Fifth Avenue Terrace, the, our first experiment up in front of the New York Public Library. We put out uh, movable tables and chairs, and at night we just stacked them all and put a chain around them, and nothing happened. So it was a success. So when we went to Bryant Park, we, we proposed it again, and the people said, okay. And there they just said, well, we'll just tell them the park's closed at night. And that'll be that. And we lost a few chairs, you know, not very many. More, there are a few more were broken, actually. More are broken than ever got taken. But it was such a small investment for the few chairs that disappeared or, or got broken versus the what was gained that everyone saw it as a complete win. So we just it was a, a little piece of dumb luck and a little piece of management, frankly. It really caught on. It's quite funny because a few years ago, uh, I was working in London. We were working up near King's Cross on a on a new plaza there, and, um, and the people said, "Well, we should do what you did in Bryant Park." And so they 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 brought chair they they 
basically we're bringing something from America that I brought from Europe back to Europe. I thought it was very funny. Oh yeah. King's cross. That's where Harry Potter boards a train. Um, so uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of movable furniture? Well, the, the big advantage of movable furniture, and this is something that William H. White uh, points out in his marvelous study, The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces, is that what happens when a person walks up to a, a, a movable chair in a park is the, they will walk up to the chair, they'll touch it, and they may move it only two inches or they may pick it up and carry it somewhere. But what happens is that by touching it and being able to adjust it, they make it personal for them. Uh, and so the sense that it's theirs makes them comfortable, even if they only move it two inches or just kind of wiggle it. Um, but with movable chairs, you can, the nice thing about it is you can sit closer or further apart. You can uh, turn toward the sun or away from the sun. You can move into the shade if it's hot and you can move into the sun when it's cold. People can get another chair and put their feet up on it or put their lunch on the one next to them. And so what happens is people find movable furniture enormously useful and attractive. Fixed furniture, fixed chairs around fixed tables are maddening because they're they're at this dimension that you can't pull a chair closer, you can't twist it, you can't do anything. It's just it's fastened down. <laughs> they're, they're so stiff. Um, it, that may be where the pandemic's taking us, that you can't move this closer to the feet. I don't know. But let's hope not. Um, there'll be an end to this at some point, I'm sure. But um, the thing is that uh, fixed furniture has enormous advantages. A, it never goes anywhere, and it helps to find space, and it can you know, be, uh, you know, people like to sit on ledges. People sit on anything, actually. They'll sit on the ground. They don't like to sit on the ground, usually because it's thought of as dirty or wet or awkward or hard or whatever, but they will. And they'll sit on grass, but, but they don't like to sit on pavement usually, um, except steps. But, but one of the things about, uh, so movable furniture has many advantages, but it's one of its best uses is to have it in combination with fixed furniture, because it's like banquettes in in cafes, you know, where you've got the wall bench, the table, and then the chairs that are pulled up to it. So you've got both in place, one that establishes the space and the other one, which is, establishes a kind of social flexibility. Um, disadvantages, well, the disadvantages are that movable furniture is sometimes does get stolen if you don't have proper management or you don't, you know, Rounded up at night if you don't take care of it. Uh, it also uh, is, tends to be a little more breakable uh, than the fixed stuff because the fixed benches are usually built for stout or metal and concrete or wood and that sort of thing. Um, and so, so uh, there are a few disadvantages to it, but those can usually be overcome by management, I'd say. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
Yeah. You know, now that you mentioned, you know, I'm in Florida Keys and I like how the other state park is set up with furniture. It's a, they have nice picnic tables that are fixed um, and then rentable chairs that when you bring back, you get your small deposit back. That's, that's a great solution. It, it truly is. I, I think one of the things I show in the book is a, a, a couple of cafes in Vienna that I realized that they, they, the combination of a of a of a, a wall bench with a table with a bunch of loose chairs is almost an ideal combination. I use that. I show that in the book uh, in Director Square in uh, Director Park in Portland, Oregon. It's just this big long wood bench. This is like a wall, and then a whole bunch of loose tables and chairs brought up next to it under this shelter, and, and it, it is very much like a a cafe setting, but it's all outdoors and it's all kind of loose and full of sun and light. It's, it's a marvelous combination, really. How did you decide what to draw? How do I select what I draw? <laughs> uh, well, um, partly it's uh, a matter of what interests me, but also quite often it's the opportunity to do it. There, there are an awful lot of things I've seen and like or admire or really love that I never did get a chance to draw, partly because I was having to keep moving. I was with somebody else or uh, it was going to rain or um, I had to stand up and I, and I, it was an awkward time. So a lot of the drawings usually are done. They're opportunistic is when you can usually sit uh, somewhere. And interestingly enough, the places that are designed for you to sit are usually parks and cafes. So there's an awful lot of drawings in parks and cafes. Um, but, uh, the choice is quite often things that suddenly catch my attention or that I've been leisurely sitting there and I notice, Oh, look at that. And, 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 um, and they are, instructive in some way to me i actually draw more out of pleasure than i do out of work i mean i mean the the sketchbooks are full of things that are just things that uh i was in a nice mood it was a good day i had a chance you know (laughs) and so that's why part of the topic of seating has to do with comfort and pleasure you know you have quite a few projects in this book um how did you decide which projects uh would go in it well i i tried to put in projects that are different from each other, but that all um, were a, were a success. <laughs> you try not to show projects that didn't quite work out. Uh, although I do mention a couple that were problematic, but uh, the projects I chose, I tried to pick ones that are very public and that are, uh, have, have succeeded. The, 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 the lessons that one can learn are solid because you can go there and people can verify it with themselves. They can say, well, I've been to the National Gallery of Art went to the Sculpture Garden. And, Gee, that was a good place to sit. Um, so I picked places that I, that I had had some success, but also that are different from each other in that some are about sitting on fountain rims. Some are about sitting in, uh, uh, on fixed benches around a place. Some are about uh, loose furniture. I tried to show the variety of things we'd come up with and also um, the, the reinvention of the obvious. For instance, the, there's this idea that people have, which is generally correct, that a bench should have a back on it to be comfortable. And I said, yeah, well, that's true. 
I, as you grow older, you really do want them back. It really is helpful. Um, you, you tend not to be sitting up as straight as you should, and it's nice to have the, the support. But so benches with backs, there, there was a sort of almost an unwritten rule in the in our field that um, you don't do benches without backs. Those are not really very generous or nice. But I discovered there were situations where actually a back on a bench would be disruptive and would not be contribute to the nature of the place or to comfort. Seems contradictory, but one, one example was at, at Battery Park City when I was working on uh, the uh, Robert Wagner Jr. Park. I wanted to have some benches that were where you could sit and look out at the at the bay and the harbor and the Statue of Liberty and uh, and Ellis Island. And one of the problems was if and I wanted them to go around a lawn I had there. And also to step down a, a like a little mini amphitheater looking at the harbor so people would sit there and all look in the same direction but see over each other. One of the problems was if I put backs on them, the backs would be in the way of people looking out, especially if the front bench was not occupied at the time. They'd just be looking at the back of a bench. And I thought, this is stupid. So I thought, well, if I took the back off, and then I've got this narrow thing that looks funny. So I thought, but what if I make it a wider, like a big cushion, like a big pillow, and made it wider so if you sat on one side, you could look at the water, and if you sat on the other side, you could look at your children playing on the lawn, and you wouldn't bang into each other because the bench would be wide enough. And so I came up with these big wooden benches that are very long and horizontal um, and are like cushions, and they they and Gee, they were kind of not, everybody loved them. People would lie down on them. People would sit on them. People would lounge about them in all different directions. So I discovered, gee, there is a time when, when you have to reinvent the obvious, the bench, and there's a time when you shouldn't, backs are not appropriate. I thought, that's interesting. And people have been very fond of those. So that's why that example's in the book. But then later, when I was working at the, um, the Washington Monument, trying to figure it out. And I realized all these people would get to the Washington Monument. They had to wait to go up. And, and there were a lot of people who would be waiting. Uh, and it's hot. They've been walking and they've been in the sun. They need to sit. So, okay, so we're going to put somewhere. For, there was nowhere for anyone to sit ever before there. So I thought, hmm, better put benches out. Oh, gosh, now what do I do? Because what's, there's no right direction to look. You want to look at the White House. You want to look at the Capitol. You want to look at the Lincoln Memorial. You want to look at each other. You want to look at the monument. <laughs> what do what do I do? And so suddenly it became very clear that the idea I'd had at Bryant Park was, I mean, at not Bryant Park, at uh, Wagner Park uh, in Battery Park City. The backless bench was right, but it also, once again, it had to be bigger, broader, so that people would look in any direction. They wouldn't bang into each other. It could take crowds. And and then I realized eh, it shouldn't be wood. That'd be too tacky. As this is this great monumental city, center of our nation, our government. They probably should be stone like these other buildings and monuments to go with everything that's here. So, so that's how that example got in. So all the examples that are in the book tell a story, and they tell the story of of each space and how it's what is different about it and what's similar in terms of the needs of people. And of and of the responses that are both visual and physical, we've done many projects, but it, you want to show projects that will 
be interesting to people, different and lively in some way, but also as a person who's taught for 40 plus years, you know, you're, you're, always, you're always in the education business of trying to help the public understand the life that they have and, what, and so they can demand more from, from uh, their, their government and each other, you know, in terms of uh, quality of life, right? Yeah, uh, on this page, this one, uh, there's two ladies at the Washington Monument, and they're laying back, leaning over the uh, white curved bench and looking upwards and taking pictures. At the Washington Monument, one of the things I wanted to do was I, I needed to, part of why we were hired to do anything was because of the, after 9-11, the, there were threats that people might, you know, drive up and blow up a bomb near it. And so we had to keep people away with a barrier. And so in the course of doing a, a barrier, I thought, well, maybe it could just be this low retaining wall that would have the, the hill behind, like it's holding up the hill. But then I thought, oh, but people don't like walls. You know, they think, oh, there's a wall between me and it. So I thought we should try and make it the wall be a place to sit. Because also the thing that I'd always liked about that part of the mall in Washington, D.C. was to see people running around in their shorts playing softball right at the power of, you know, the most fearsome government in the world. <laughs> All these guys playing softball and men and women playing volleyball and stuff. So I thought, why can't I make the wall a place you want to sit and watch the people playing games? That would be really a good American thing to do, very open and democratic. But then I thought the wall's a little too tall. People don't like to sit. You know, there's a there's a comfort range. It's just like doorknobs all over the world that are about the same height. Seats all over the world are about the same height. They're somewhere between 14 and 18 inches, quite often so 16 to 18. It's common seat height. Everywhere in the world. So I thought, okay, but the wall has to be at least two feet or a little bit more. What am I going to do about that? Because it's not comfortable. Then I got the idea, well, I put a footrest. And then then I thought, oh, dear, if I put a footrest out in front of this wall, that, that won't interfere with its ability to stop terrorists driving trucks with bombs. <laughs> but it... But I can imagine somebody in government saying, what's this for? You know, this costs extra. We just need the wall. We don't need this. I, I imagine some bureaucrat blue penciling it. So I decided to call it um, a curb. Because, and they said, what's that for? And I said, well, that's to keep the snow plows from hitting the wall and, and you know, hurting the lights and stuff. They said, oh, okay. <laughs> so, it's, uh, and and it's, it's sort of like you have to figure out how to, how to do these simple things is like I, I described the when I was doing the benches around the Columbus Circle monument, the monument at Columbus Circle. Again, another backless bench for the same reasons that people need to look at both ways and not to interrupt the space and how to make them comfortable looking at a fountain or looking the other way, etc. One of the prophets there was um, as we were getting it done, the Someone in the mayor's office started worrying about uh, whether the homeless would want to sleep on this bench, you know, because I was designing this nice, big, comfortable bench, and they were terrified that right there, and the the tenants in the in the buildings wouldn't like homeless people there. They're terrified of homeless, of course. So one of the things I said was that, um, but uh, that they, um, they so they said you have to put put. Uh, um, 
arms, you know, arm, break it up with arms all over, you know, because we don't want people lying down. And I said, oh, God, you know, that'll make it look so unwelcome. You know, it'll make it look terrible. It'll chop the form up, look awful. It would not only look awful, but it sends a signal that uh, watch out, bad people might be here, you know, certainly. So I thought, no, no, you, you want to make the middle class as comfortable as possible. But they kept saying, well, but you have to show the mayor's office something. You know, these people are really worried and the park department is going to respond and, so I said, okay. So I went back to the office and I told the guy in my office, Alan, I said, Alan, we've got to come up with an arm. I have an idea. And I drew something. I said, could you make something like this out of, out of the Ipe wood and let's make a full size one and we'll take it to a meeting. He said, okay. So we took it to the meeting with the commissioner of parks in, in New York <laughs> And we're sitting there, and I said, and so here's this arm that we might um, put, and we'd space them out like this, and blah, blah, blah. And everybody's there, and, this, and at a certain point, this woman said, it's a canoe. And I said, oh, gee, it does look kind of like a canoe. And I'd, drawn, I'd, I'd come up with this double-ended curve thing that looked just like uh, a canoe from Last of the Mohicans or something. <laughs> and And... And they suddenly realized that if they put them in as I'd drawn them, uh, it would look like all these Indians looking at Columbus. <laughs> My God, we can't do that. <laughs> so that was the end of the arms on those benches. Um, because they realized that there would be this protest. And now here we are having this protest. You know? Anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> I said there's a lot of war stories in the book about arguing with clients in order to, because I was always arguing on behalf of the comfort of, of ordinary people, men, women, and children, you know, that, you know, that if the middle class feels uncomfortable, then you're going to have trouble. You know, the, the way to make places safe is for, you know, the elderly and kids and middle class people to feel comfortable because if they're comfortable, they'll fill the space and it'll be self-policing, you know, it'll work for the, the poor, it'll work for the rich. So anyway. Now, I, I did send you this, this question in advance. Uh, what is your favorite chair? Where would you put it and why? <laughs> well, that's like asking about your children. Um, I do have some favorite chairs, not only of my own design, but of others. Um, in my own house, uh, one of my favorite chairs is... Uh, I have a pair of Alvar Alto chairs that are quite wonderful. Um, they're covered in the kind of fake zebra <laughs> pattern, the cloth that uh, some uh, Finnish fabric designer made for him. They're, they're really nice uh, chairs, very loungy. They're, they're kind of like a couple of chairs I found down in a, in a place in France once in a mill in Provence that were these slouchy chairs that really you slouch in them. They're very, they they do all the slouching for you. The chair does, which I kind of like, Um, but outdoors in public spaces, I, I guess I'd have to say one of my favorite places to sit would be uh, either in the the Luxembourg garden in Paris, which is maybe my favorite park or the Tuileries in Paris and sit in one of those nice, of metal and wood chairs that are big and heavy and curved and, and you can pick them up and move them around. Uh, they, they, I, I can't think of a nicer 
place and a better chair to be in, frankly. You're not surprised by that answer, are you, Tricia? Oh, yes. And I agree. I love colors and the flowers, the whole place. It, it, it just works. Mm-hmm. You know, recently when uh, we did the, the new Apple Park uh, for Steve Jobs and for Apple in Cupertino, we finally ended up, you know, what, what do we furnish all the, the, we went on and got a bunch of chairs from, uh, from France, you know, basically because, it, and, but we worked with them. They, we adjusted the table. They, they redid the table for us. But anyway, um, so, you know, you asked a question a few minutes ago that I realized I didn't quite give you the full answer. When you asked me, how did I choose to draw what I drew and why are these drawings in the book? Um, Aside from the drawings that are of the office projects, um, when the drawings that are of places, are, most of them were done when I was on a vacation. I was somewhere and I was, I, I had, you know, a fresh eye, I was rested and, and I had the time to look around. Quite often, you know, you know, drawing is really about looking and, you know, it, it's about seeing. And uh, it's more about seeing than it is wriggling your wrist. That's another topic. But, but I, I, that answer, I, I didn't really fully explain that. It was mostly because I was at, at leisure, able to look around, and able to see clearly. Oh, I like that. That's when I come up with my best ideas, too. Um, well, thank you so much for being here and taking the time to speak with me today. Um, what is your next project? What am I doing now? <laughs> Well, I have I have a I have another book that just came out, um, which is a, a French a sketchbook from France. Or the people who did the Be Seated, I did a book with them and with Pablo, the designer, who made it. It's quite a beautiful book. Um, it just came out. This, this is an awkward time to bring out a new book, obviously, with libraries and universities and bookstores all closed. But so that's the thing that's just come out. But and if that's a success, then we'll go on to the Italian sketchbook. <laughs> but we'll see if, if people run out and buy enough of them. You know, it's a, I mean, Be Seated's been out for I don't know a couple of years, I guess. What's the France sketchbook about? Well, the the France sketchbook, um, I it starts with drawings I did back in that first trip in 1967. Uh, I've been coming and going there for years. I you know. Spent years in Italy, spent years working in England, I've been in China, done all kinds of stuff. But over the last 50 years, I have accumulated, I realize, and well, various sketchbooks, I've got, you know, there's like over 170 sketchbooks by now from time past. And so I just ransacked them for the what I had done that I, there's no big narrative to this thing. It's just the pleasures of looking and of what I learned and saw and about, and so it's a book about drawing. It's a book about seeing, it's a book about life. It's, it's a book about, about the, the pleasures, qualities of, of a, of a culture that has produced some of the best spaces, some of the best food, some of the best, you know, gardens, some of the best in the world. And so it's, it's just a nice, uh, uh, dip into France. It's, not really a travel book. It's not really an architecture book. It's it's a it's it's about landscape. It's about gardens. It's about parks. It's about drawing. It's about people. It's about life. It, it's an interesting book because it's just a 
as my wife once said, what are you going to do with all these sketchbooks? Do something with them. So I did something with them. And we are all the better for it. You know, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. And uh, we'll be talking to you very soon about that next book. Well, I hope so. And thanks, Tricia. Thanks for the chance to chat. It's been great. Bye-bye. And again, today's uh, guest has been award-winning landscape architect, Lori Olin. His book is Be Seated, published by Oro Editions in 2017. And I'm Trisha Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas or books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.